Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I want to take um, this opportunity as well to thank our 60th anniversary series sponsors, Haynes & Boone, Billingsley & Company, the Hoagland Foundation, and especially our media sponsors, the Dallas Morning News and WRR 101.1 Classical F- FM. I also want to thank Aiken Gump. Uh, you'll hear in a few minutes from its, one of its managing partners, Ken Mengus, but I just also want to say how much... Uh, We've appreciated at the World Affairs Council their continued support. It means a great deal. Uh, Ken is someone that I can call up, and and I see Carl Zabotowski here with the city of Dallas, and I can say, Ken, we need some help. We need either some lawyers to meet with an international delegation, or we need a a little bit of money to support a reception. And I want to thank you for that, Ken. And our good friends at Success North Dallas, thank you, too, for being a cooperating organization. Thank you, Ken. Great. Well, I'm, I'm feeling almost uh, guilty after that lovely introduction. The uh, cheerful nature of my speech tonight um, is suggested by its title, Uh, A few hard truths, the United States, Israel, the Palestinians, and the threat of nuclear terrorism. So uh, they're not going to turn into a musical, I don't think, anytime soon. Um, But it's a particular pleasure to be speaking to this group uh, after the remarkable events uh, of the last few days, which relate directly to some of what I'm going to be speaking with you about. Uh, It's a privilege uh, on any day, however, to address some of the very serious challenges faced by the United States, Israel, and the West. All the more so because I wasn't exactly expecting this 32 years ago when the publication of my first novel rocketed me from unknown to obscure virtually overnight. (laughs) Then there was my third novel, Escape the Night, when I tried to write some really definitive sex scenes and the only one who noticed was my mom. She calls me up with a certain turn of a tone of maternal reserve. She says, well, I really like that novel, and detecting a little uh, reluctance on her part, I said, well, what's wrong, Mom? She said, well, nothing really. It's just why did that couple, referring to male and female protagonists, make love so much? I said, well, I didn't really think they made love that much. Uh, they, to me, they were just a typical urban couple. Well, she was so alarmed by that revelation. Um, <laughs> That for the next three months, whenever she'd ring me up, she'd say, is this a good time to call? <laughs> uh, anyhow, things did get better, and uh, once I found an actual readership, uh, aside from my mother, uh, I eventually enjoyed an opportunity uh, rare among uh, writers, which is to use fiction uh, to address the uh, difficulties we face at, at home and abroad. Um, which brings me to why, in exile... I chose to write about the incendiary and tragic conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, And then, in the devil's light, about the threat of nuclear terrorism by al-Qaeda emanating from Pakistan, uh, on which bin Laden's death sheds considerable light. The travel and research this involved for me uh, began with exile 
in the festering problem of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank. So I want to speak candidly about a very hard subject, addressing that conflict with fresh thinking about Israel, the Palestinians, in our responsibility. During my time in Israel, I had many illuminating experiences, including meeting with Shimon Perez, a wise and sophisticated man who personifies Israeli history and who memorably remarked, Jews are not meant to be occupiers. And on the West Bank, I witnessed the explosive fear and anger between the IDF, whose mission it is to protect Israel from violence, and the Palestinians whose lives are defined by checkpoints raised and the sometimes arbitrary behaviors of a military force, which is both fearful and despised. But my most indelible impression is of the fundamental estrangement between Israelis and Palestinians. One of my most wrenching interviews was with the survivors of a terrible suicide bombing in Haifa. Two widows who had lost their husbands and two children, and a married couple who had lost their oldest daughter. Then I met with the Israeli general who had ordered the famous military operation against the Palestinian refugee camp of Jenin, which allegedly killed, if one believes the Palestinians, over 50 civilians. Certainly there were 50 dead. It was a reprisal, he said, for another suicide bombing planned by the Palestinians in Jenin, a step necessary to protect Israelis from yet more terrorism. Later, I traveled to Jenin and met in secret with the leader of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. This man was wanted by the ADF, who would have killed him if they found him. He moved virtually every hour and sat between two bodyguards with an M16 in his lap. But what struck me most was when I noted to him that the IDF, the Israeli army, asserted that the Jenin operation was in retaliation for a suicide bombing in Israel. Oh no, he answered without irony. The suicide bombing was a reprisal for an earlier IDF operation in Jenin, which had killed yet more innocent civilians. This sequence captures how the most committed antagonists are too transfixed by their own narrative to see this tragedy for the complex thing that it is. But the real tragedy to me is how millions of war-weary Israelis and Palestinians have become hostages to extremism. To gain peace, Israelis must accept that whatever its genesis and justification, the occupation of the West Bank and the expansion of settlements has engendered among Palestinians feelings of impotence and hatred. And yet, sadly, the fanatics who believe that West Bank is God's biblical grant to the Jewish people and therefore oppose the establishment of the Palestinian state exercise now under this administration a disproportionate influence on Israeli policy. As for Palestinians, they must accept that there can be no massive right of return. The repatriation of Palestinian refugees and their descendants, which, as a matter of sheer demographics, would spell an end to the Jewish states. And yet their leaders fear that saying so will alienate their people. And yet anyone who has studied this problem knows that the basic terms for peace were outlined at Camp David in 2000 and refined by Ehud Olmert and Mahmoud Abbas in 2008. A border based on the 1967 lines with land swaps compensating Palestine for the incorporation of major settlements into Israel. A fair division of Jerusalem with each state governing demographic neighborhoods to include its capital and a special zone for holy sites governed by a custodial committee made up of Israel, Palestine, the U.S., Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. 
Security guarantees for Israel, providing Palestine with a strong police force, but no army or navy, an international force patrolling the borders, and a Palestinian pledge not to enter into military alliances with nations who do not recognize Israel. And finally, allowing a limited number of Palestinians to return to what is now Israel, supplemented by compensation and relocation in other countries. It is equally clear that, whatever the attitude of this particular Israeli government, peace is vital to the national security interests of the United States. As General David Petraeus has said, the enduring hostility between Israel and some of its neighbors present distinct challenges to our ability to advance our interests. The conflict foments anti-American resentment due to a perception of U.S. favoritism for Israel. Arab anger over the Palestinian question limits the strength and depths of U.S. partnerships with governments and peoples and weakens the legitimacy of moderate regimes in the Arab world. Meanwhile, al-Qaeda and other militarist groups exploit that anger to mobilize support. The conflict also gives Iran influence in the Arab world. The list of those strengthened by this conflict also includes Hamas, Hezbollah, and radical jihadists in such dangerous spots as Pakistan, and who will use the death of bin Laden to call for revenge. Throughout the Islamic world, it is a leading source of hatred for America and Israel alike, creating more radicals, preventing Arab governments from normalizing relations with Israel, and feeding the belief that the United States is anti-Muslim. For Israel, only a just peace with the Palestinians holds the hope of wide-ranging security guarantees, international recognition of its permanent borders, and an end to its isolation, including strategic steps one would hope eventually by Syria away from Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. But in recent years, every development has lessened the cause of peace. In months, stability in the West Bank and Jerusalem may end. We will likely lose President Abbas and Prime Minister Fayed, the architect of civil institutions on the West Bank. And in September, over 140 members of the UN General Assembly will recognize a Palestinian state as a member whose territory includes all the West Bank, Gaza, and West Jerusalem further isolating Israel. More broadly, the dramatic changes that we've all witnessed during the so-called Arab Spring make a near-term peace deal even more essential to Israel itself and to the stability of the region, especially given the possibility that greater democracy in neighboring countries like Egypt and Jordan will accord more power to Islamist elements. The ironic result is that many Israelis have focused exclusively on self-defense. But turning from the peace process is worse than a dead end. Israel's legitimate concerns about security, including along its borders, can only be resolved by a multilateral force established as part of a peace agreement. Faced with this ticking clock, the Netanyahu government is poised to move backwards. Its rejection of our call to restrict settlement building ended talks before they began. Its insistence that a peace must include Israeli troops along the Jordanian border with the West Bank is a further obstacle to peace and remarkably implies that a NATO force, which includes American troops, cannot be relied on to protect Israel. Add to this the Israeli insistence on Palestinian recognition of Israel as a precondition to further negotiations rather than an indispensable outcome. 
and one is left to wonder whether Mr. Netanyahu's negotiating position is, in fact, calculated to frustrate negotiations and to please those members of the coalition on which he depends who, because of theocratic reasons or commitment to the settlement movement, do not want to give up the West Bank. But before I discuss what the United States and Israel should, and I believe must do, I want to say that much of the historic blame for the failure to achieve peace rests on the Palestinian leadership. Uh, there aren't any Nelson Mandela's here. Still, we are where we are. And that requires the United States as a friend of Israel to at last speak some hard truths about some real, the real interests of Israel and the United States. First, American support of Israel is based upon a profound moral commitment to a people with a uniquely tragic history, saying to the world that we as Americans will never forget and never look away. But viewed in strictly military and strategic terms, the current Israeli government is far from a national security asset to the United States. Privately, many of our leading national security experts believe that our security commitment to Israel has become an expensive one-way street, and what little we gain is far outweighed by the negative impact of the continuing occupation of the West Bank. Now, I want to be very clear here because it's touchy territory for somebody to wander into, especially if they're more used to writing sex scenes. But <laughs> I do not remotely mean to apply that Americans should abandon Israel, and I consider any such suggestion repugnant. But America and Americans, from our present to the most devoted friends of Israel, must call on Israel to achieve an equitable peace with the Palestinians and to abandon policies which defeat that goal. In doing so, we must distinguish between supporting Israel as a state and supporting a government that empowers the opponents of peace including the religious extremists who believe in a greater Israel. To be blunt, these elements view the three million Palestinians on the West Bank as racially inferior squatters with no right to be there. This is tragic for the Palestinians, and equally so for Israel, a country based on humane and democratic values which such extremists would fundamentally degrade. It is past time for the United States to say that it stands with those American supporters of Israel the great majority, who appreciate the moral and strategic necessity of a Palestinian state and the terrible cost of both Israel and America of continued Israeli isolation. I am well aware in saying this that many of the really hardline supporters of Israel will call me naive and uh, maybe a lot worse. Uh, a true friend of Israel recognizes that that country lives in existential peril. But racism breeds racism, and hatred breeds more hate. Among American supporters of Israel right or long, I have heard a disdain for Palestinians and Arabs which cast them as lesser beings. No good can come of this, for Israel or for our country. A moral commitment should not be poisoned by immorality. So let us not perpetuate further this terrible failure of empathy and imagination. There is no parallel to the Holocaust which left a scar on the conscience of the world and in the souls of all of us who bring this history to our passionate concern for Israel and its survival. But the plight of Palestinians also causes feelings of pain, vulnerability, disposition, and anger, not only among the Palestinians themselves, but among Arabs. Yet some Americans view this 
this conflict remains to a remarkable degree rooted in what I would call the Exodus narrative after the famous uh, Leon Uritz novel, which I know so many of us have read, an exclusive focus on the Israelis as embattled figures who struggled to put the Holocaust behind them and became remarkable pioneers who share our values in a hostile region. By contrast, the Palestinian narrative of disposition does not resonate with our history, our popular culture, or our religious experience. Chaim Weissman defined this view almost 80 years ago. On one side, the forces of destruction, the forces of the desert, and on the other side, the forces of civilization and building. It is time for us now to recognize that both of these narratives include myths and oversimplifications that perpetuate misunderstanding and hatred. One of the results is that Palestinians have been delegitimized as a people in the minds of all too many Americans. To focus exclusively on groups like Hamas, despicable as they are, is to ignore the real progress made by Palestinians in the building of economic, political, and security institutions on the West Bank to incubate a Palestinian state. In the genuine willingness of the current PLO leadership to uh, pursue an equitable peace. It would be tragic indeed if too many of the next generation of Americans viewed the next generation of Palestinians as nothing more than anti-Semites with a penchant for violence. In the end, what is required is not choosing one side over another or exclusively favoring one people's narrative of suffering or victimhood. For Israel and for us, the only long-term hope is simple justice, a state where the Palestinians have the hope of a normal life and the ability to live it. Anything else is doomed. And if that means that an American president must put his own peace plan on the table and tell the parties that four decades of this is enough, so be it. The Israeli and American right, including the most intransigent American supporters of Israel, cannot be allowed to define the limits of acceptable discussion or circumscribe the ability of our government to act in the long-term interests of the United States in Israel itself. Now, what about Hamas and Hezbollah, one might very reasonably ask. But however hateful the history and rhetoric of Hamas, isolation has only played into their hands. In theory, Hamas has notionally pledged to accept a peace agreement, which would, of course, recognize Israel as a state, if it is approved in a national referendum of Palestinians. Thus, Netanyahu's refusal to negotiate with, with the PLO, which includes Hamas, because it does not recognize Israel, is utterly beside the point. More fundamental, there is only one thing guaranteed to weaken Hamas, a settlement that promises the Palestinians a better life instead of more hatred and despair. Now, the pivotal importance of this regional security for Israel, among other things, is underscored by the subject of my new novel, the threat of nuclear terrorism emanating from Pakistan against the United States, Israel, or other countries in the West. Now, in my novel, The Devil's Light, three jihadist groups in Pakistan, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and lashkar e taiba forge an operational alliance to steal a nuclear bomb from the Pakistani arsenal in order to destroy a major Western city. Pursuant to the plan, developed by bin Laden in 2009 and directed by a key al-Qaeda operative, LET, 
which carried out the terrible Mumbai attacks, destroys the Taj Mahal and attacks Indian Parliament, precipitating a state of nuclear alert between India and Pakistan, whose intelligence agency is LET's chief sponsor. When a Pakistani convoy moves a bomb from a secret storage facility to an Air Force base near the border, a group of Pakistani Taliban, directed by al-Qaeda and tipped off by a military insider, attacks the convoy and steals the bomb, which al-Qaeda conceals within Pakistan. From there, al-Qaeda has several possible routes for smuggling the bomb to America, Europe, or Israel. Now, this is not a Bondian fantasy. What's really so frightening about this scenario is its realism. Every detail is of the gravest concern to our national security and intelligence community. Far from ending al-Qaeda, bin Laden's death leaves behind a network of terrorists, his most brilliant achievement, who will be bent on revenge and will use his martyrdom to attempt to recruit more adherents. But almost disturbing about this is how little Americans know about the conditions which create it. With respect to nuclear proliferation, Americans and Israelis tend to worry most about Iran. But it is unlikely that Iran itself will start a nuclear war. They have a return address, after all, and Israel would annihilate them. So the real threat is non-state actors like al-Qaeda, which is why Pakistan's nuclear arsenal makes it the most dangerous place on Earth. The fact that bin Laden apparently hid in plain sight, uh, and I think pretty clearly protected by key elements of the Pakistani uh, intelligence uh, establishment, dramatizes the lethal realities which lie beneath. There is no country with more terrorists per square mile and few with more nuclear weapons, as many as 110 by our estimate, making it the world's fifth largest nuclear power. The spur is Pakistan's bitter rivalry with India, focused on the violent 60-year dispute over Kashmir. The effect is the CIA's nightmare scenario, a jihadist seizure of nuclear weapons or materials for use against the West. This could happen in several different ways. The, the clandestine acquisition of nuclear materials has happened with the founder of the uh, Pakistani nuclear program, A.Q. Khan, who essentially was running a nuclear bazaar. The seizure of a nuclear facility by a rogue military officer. A jihadist takeover of the Pakistani government itself. In the scenario of the devil's light the threat of a nuclear weapon. Underlying these fears is the insecurity of the Pakistani nuclear arsenal. We don't know all the facilities where the weapons may be stored. The people who do, the military and the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, include highly placed jihadist sympathizers, typified by a former head of the ISI who has said, quote, the same nuclear capacity that can destroy Madras, India, can destroy Tel Aviv. As for the weapons themselves, we believe that they lack the security systems in, uh, which operate like a sophisticated ATM, which we install in ours to prevent accidental or unauthorized use. The tension between Pakistan and India poses the constant threat of a nuclear alert, and nuclear weapons are never less secure than when they are moved from one site to another. As for al-Qaeda, it has long been obsessed with nuclear weapons, and Pakistan has always been its focus. Just before 9-11, bin Laden met in Afghanistan with a Pakistani nuclear scientist and engineer. 
drawing up specifications for an al-Qaeda bomb. And after 9-11, bin Laden announced al-Qaeda's intention to kill 4 million Americans and issued a fatwa calling for use of nuclear arms against the West. A Pakistani bomb carries enough highly enriched uranium to destroy New York, but can travel in a container the size of a coffin. Its total weight is between 200 and 300 pounds, which means that a few men could put in a van, truck, boat, airplane, or cargo container. Even a private plane could get it off the ground. Such a weapon could easily be smuggled through the ports in Long Beach or New York, where we inspect roughly 2% of all cargo containers. From there, a small aircraft could deliver a nuclear weapon to any city in America. Take Washington, D.C. In theory, we've got a 15-mile no-fly zone around the capital enforced by surface-to-air missiles and jets at Andrews Air Force Base on a five-minute alert. But thousands of aircraft fly within 15 miles of the White House. If one crosses the line at 300 miles an hour, five minutes won't be enough. Though the government won't say so, multiple planes fly over the Capitol every year, and we don't spot half of them until it's over. There's more than a fair chance the al-Qaeda could turn the White House into an epicenter of a nuclear blast. A strike against a major U.S. city could be economically, politically, and psychologically shattering. Terrified of al-Qaeda, Americans would wait for the next city to disappear. This would threaten our belief in our own government, our system of civil liberties, and even our future as a democracy. It would create great pressure to withdraw from the Middle East. In fact, it's the only conceivable development which, in my mind, could affect America's commitment to Israel. As for Israel itself, the impact could well be fatal. A recent poll revealed that one-fourth of Israelis would consider emigrating if Iran develops a bomb. Imagine, then, the impact of a strike on Tel Aviv that annihilates hundreds of thousands of Israelis, destroying the heart of their infrastructure, their economy, and most fundamentally, their belief that they can survive as a nation. The likelihood is that Israel would become a Masada state, populated by a cadre of religious fanatics prepared to watch their families die rather than yield an inch of their atomic wasteland. The result would be unspeakably tragic, the end of Israel as we know it. So could al-Qaeda link with other jihadists to steal a nuclear weapon? They could. But to grasp this, one needs a sophisticated understanding of the links between jihadist groups and their ties to the military who controls the Pakistani nuclear arsenal and, in particular, the ISI, the elements which allowed bin Laden to use Pakistan as a refuge and a launching pad. The ISI resembles the center of a wheel with jihadist spokes. The ISI helped create the Taliban to fight the Russians in Afghanistan and introduced its leaders to bin Laden. It created LET to fight a guerrilla war against India and the Kashmir, and beyond that, to prevent detente between Israel and a civilian Palestinian government. The military, the ISI, and LET all recruited among the Punjabi, Pakistan's dominant ethnic group, creating familial ties between all three. With the ISI's protection, LET, despite Mumbai, trains hundreds of jihadists in Pakistan every year. And many within the ISI resent the U.S. for pressuring the military to fight the Taliban, a resentment exacerbated by the operation to kill bin Laden and our suspicion of ISI complicity in hiding him.
Indeed, the ISI is so marbled with jihadist sympathizers that joint operations with the CIA are next to impossible, as you will have noticed when the President uh, chose not to inform anyone in the Pakistani government uh, of our operation against bin Laden. Hence the ISI's recent demand that America withdraw hundreds of intelligence agents from the country, including special operations forces used to train the Pakistani military in counterterrorism. The immediate cause was the effort of a CIA operative to penetrate LET without the knowledge of the Pakistani government. In a resulting ISI demand that we disclose such operations could fatally compromise our efforts. And the weakening of our anti-insurgency efforts can only strengthen the Taliban and make our counterinsurgency efforts even more dependent on drone attacks, which the Pakistani military is pressuring us to reduce. To say the least, this deepening rancor only exacerbates the nuclear risk. As for al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and LAT, they are now allied against America and Israel. Uh, this is not the alarmist scenario of a novelist who wants to gin up an interesting story. In his new book, Bruce, Bruce Rydell, a former CIA analyst and a leading uh, expert on Pakistan and al-Qaeda, states flatly that, quote, a syndicate of terrorists embedded in Pakistan is planning further attacks on America and its allies at home and abroad, unquote. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have safe havens in Pakistan, is typified by bin Laden's remarkable presence. In Benazir Bhutto's murder was most likely their joint operation. As to LET, Al-Qaeda helped to fund it, and after 9-11, its leaders fled Afghanistan to hide in LET safe houses. And all three groups are Sunni and increasingly share Al-Qaeda's goal of jihad against the West. For Israel in particular, a jihadist Pakistan could become a dangerous supporter of groups pledged to its destruction. Another compelling reason, if more are needed, for Israel to pursue peace and security arrangements with its immediate neighbors. So what do we do about Pakistan itself when elements of securities establishment seemingly protected bin Laden by silence? As matters stand, we're spending what little leverage we have on pressing its government to take on the Taliban, despite America's bluntly stated belief that this effort is woefully inadequate. But cutting off aid would only destabilize the country further. The absence of easy answers requires the undramatic but essential work that any hard situation requires. Engagement, consistency, tough and smart diplomacy, often in private, and an understanding of, of Pakistan's complex and combustible environment. If that sounds anodyne, it is well to remember our historical record in Pakistan, arrogant, inconsistent, and sometimes disengaged and myopic. One example is the sanctions we imposed on Pakistan in the 80s for pursuing its nuclear program. Our reward was decreased influence, increased suspicion, more nukes, and a generation of military intelligence officers more open to jihadist doctrine. All these consequences were foreseeable, except apparently to the bold American thinkers who imagined, as they too often imagine, how easy it is to bring a proud and complex foreign country to its knees. So what are the particulars of a sane and far-sighted policy? First, stay the course, however difficult, 
We had to deal with the Russians, and we have to deal with the Pakistanis. History has shown that walking away from Pakistan is a very bad idea. The relationship is hard now. What's scary is that it could be worse, and the nuclear weapons will still be there. Second, we cannot rely, as we did in much of the Middle East, on strong or autocratic leaders from the military to be permanent bulwark against Islamic fundamentalism. Rather, we should also engage with civilian leaders and encourage the strengthening of civil institutions, political, legislative, judicial, and electoral. Third, our aid programs should not just focus on economic aid, but modern educational systems, including for women. It is not just madrasas that teach hate. Fourth, we must strengthen offer-to-officer contact with the Pakistani military. That could enable us over time to have more influence with respect to nuclear security and to provide more tactical assistance in helping the military fight the Taliban. Fifth, we must support the CIA and our intelligence community in any reasonable way and prudent way that we can. As the death of bin Laden illustrates so dramatically, there is no substitute for first-rate intelligence. Sixth, we must begin the slow, arduous, but necessary work of engaging Pakistan to enter into the international regime covering nuclear weapons, which, whatever its defects, is far better than nothing. Right now, only two countries with large nuclear arsenals reject international oversight, Pakistan and Israel. With respect to Pakistan, this is dangerous indeed. Finally, and this really underlies everything because of the rivalry uh, with India and the fact that the nuclear arsenal in Pakistan is viewed as a deterrent to Indian military superiority. We have to employ private, patient, far-sighted diplomacy to try to promote detente over time between Pakistan and Israel. Their enmity is the spur to Pakistan's nuclear program. Until it is diminished, that nuclear problem will fester. Resolution of the Kashmir issue, however difficult, would eliminate the principal motive for Pakistani entwinement with the, Pakistan, with the Taliban in LET to wage asymmetric warfare against India. And it would pave the way, eventually, for Pakistan to more firmly oppose the Taliban and quit supporting LET, leaving al-Qaeda without its principal force multipliers for acts of terror. Now, I, I realize, of course, this is not a feel-good speech, uh, replete with easy answers, let alone a celebration of bin Laden's death as a reason to feel safer. And I do assure you, really, there are sex scenes in this book, too. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's, there are moments of tenderness. There are complicated characters. There are the, and I think a good story, the things that you would want, uh, I certainly wanted to have in my novel. But I speak about these things uh, not because it's a feel-good speech, but because I feel good about you guys in this group uh, as people who recognize that a foreign policy should make the world less dangerous, not more, that simple answers are very often the wrong answers, that sound diplomacy requires a willingness to look ahead for decades, not weeks or months or even years. The foreign policy of a great nation does not avoid hard truths or shy away from complex challenges. It embraces them. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I, I, uh, the, uh, now you know what I think about the world. I would love to know what you guys are thinking or are curious about. Um, 
Uh, I, uh, I accept abuse. I will willingly listen to your stories about your favorite John Grisham novels. Um, uh, uh, but the, uh, the one tragedy is, is not to ask me anything, because that, that, that uh, causes uh, terrible feelings of neglect, sadness. Uh, writer meltdown is a terrible thing to see in public. Uh, so I encourage uh, anyone who has any, any question, comments, objection, uh, story to let me know. Well, some of it depends on how the Arab Spring turns out. I mean, I think it is remarkable uh, that we have uh, democracy demonstrations in a place like Egypt and we don't see burning American flags or burning Israeli flags. Uh, I think it's also notable uh, that there has been a certain uh, turning away from al-Qaeda, I think, among uh, masses of people in the Middle East. Uh, people aren't naming their kids Osama anymore, which they were doing in great great numbers for a while. You don't see his face on T-shirts, which you actually did. Um, I think the uh, violence that uh, uh, the uh, Zarqawi, uh, the al-Qaeda operator in, in uh, Iraq, perpetrated against other Iraqis uh, was uh, repellent uh, to many. So uh, on, on, at least at the moment, the uh, Arab Spring, I think, is hopeful because it, it shows a force for change that is so divorced from the al-Qaeda apocalyptic notion of violence and a caliphate uh, that we only view it as, uh, as, a, uh, as a force for good. However, there's a great saying uh, about emerging democracies, uh, one man, one vote, one time. We'll have to wait to see whether there's a second election uh, and how these things evolve. I note that the Muslim Brotherhood is probably the most organized force outside the, the military in, um, in Egypt at the moment. But I, I do think that bears on, certainly on, uh, on, on al-Qaeda's popularity. But on the other hand, al-Qaeda's not running a plebiscite. Uh, they want a few dedicated adherents who are dedicated to their vision. Um, and we can't keep people from um, uh, embracing it. Uh, but we can certainly try to pursue a foreign policy which uh, eliminates sources of grievance uh, among, uh, in the Arab world, the Muslim world, as best we can. Uh, there are those who objected to the relatively respectful treatment of um, uh, bin Laden's body. I happen to agree with what the president did. Uh, we're not them, um, and there's no need to spike the football in the end zone. So. It seems to me the, the elephant in this room may well be China, and I wonder if you've given any thought to their emerging efforts to influence the international scene might have on the Middle East. Well, it kind of bothers me that they own a big chunk of our debt, for one thing. Um, I, that, that is a concern. On the other hand, they have their own restive minorities, and I'm not sure encouraging a group like al-Qaeda is anything that they would really find attractive because it would be too easy to have that uh, turn on themselves. Uh, on, on the broader question of, 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 of China as a power vis-a-vis -vis American interests generally, 
Uh, obviously, it really is a concern. Um, I think they are carefully but aggressively expanding their influence. Uh, if you go to Africa, which I have, uh, they are all over uh, the emerging nations in Africa with, with, uh, with various projects. And, um, you know, they are uh, really the world power. If we're talking about nation states, the world power to be watching. Uh, so it's a, it's a great question and, and uh, probably something that an uh, a expert in China could talk to you for two or three hours and just scratch the surface. But as to terrorism, as opposed to expanding influence, I'm not deeply concerned that the Chinese are going to do something uh, irresponsible with respect to that. They've, they've, they've got to live in a complicated state, too. Steve in the back. How's this? Can you hear me? Let's yeah. Speak. I'll just speak up. Yeah. I think we're, we're down to one mic. The version that we often get in our Western press is that the Israelis are frustrated because they don't feel they have a reliable partner to negotiate with. This strikes me as overly simplistic, with, yet with a grain of truth. What is your perspective? Well, you know, certainly uh, uh, back in the day with Arafat, uh, he was not a, a deep, deeply trustworthy human being, uh, nor had he built civil institutions. Uh, nor was he other than guilty of corruption, which a lot of those folks were. So uh, if you're talking about the, the, the uh, historic grievance with the Palestinians, uh, I mean, that's absolutely right. Uh, the problem is at some point you have to analyze your situation as it actually exists. It has changed. There's been a remarkable progress in the last several years on West Bank and building civil institutions. Abbas does want to end his career with an equitable peace. Uh, most Palestinians are sick of war. Uh, and if you're talking about trustworthy, there are a lot of people that consider you know, Netanyahu to be extremely devious and dishonest, and some of them are in the State Department. Um, so uh, I think that narrative certainly has a lot of historic truth, uh, but I think it has outrun its usefulness, except to those people who uh, don't really want to explore the path to peace. Do you see anyone in Israel that, like a Itzhak Rabin, that might be the next leader that would have the commitment? Well, you mentioned Rabin, and that's an interesting part of, uh, of this, because so often extremists rule the day. Rabin was strong enough back in the mid-'90s to make peace, and he was killed by a right-wing Israeli. You would think that that would have led to the, re the election of, of Perez as his successor. Uh, then Hamas launched a... Uh, a series of suicide bombings which tipped the election to Netanyahu which is exactly what they wanted. And it's amazing how extremists always manage to seize the state of play. As to uh, the current situation, uh, there isn't a single strong figure now that uh, Sharon, whatever his past history, has been in a coma low these many years. Uh, but I would, I, I would propose that a coalition between Netanyahu and Livni, or a Livni government, Livni being the uh, the head of Kadima, uh, Sharon's party, uh, would be much more open to peace. I don't think this, this current group really is, to tell you the truth. At least on the surface, um, I have great difficulty in believing that Netanyahu and the Palestinians is like Nixon to China. Thank you, and thank you for your remarkable insights. I was in Israel two months ago and certainly had the same experience that you're describing. 
since Netanyahu's father is still alive. It seems that he's not going to negotiate peace. And I had two questions that related to what the Israelis are thinking. One has to do with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Israelis see Muslim Brotherhood, even though they have uh, technically eschewed violence 10 years ago, as a front for continued extremist elements, and they're very concerned about elections coming up perhaps in August. And then they're concerned about Turkey, another flotilla apparently coming later in May, and Erdogan's government moving toward a kind of an Ottoman Empire again, and a belief that that's going to continue to be belligerent. And I just wondered if you had thoughts on both. Well, you know, the... You know, the, the, the difficulty with addressing things like the, the, uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, if you're someone who believes that there aren't easy answers, is that everything you say uh, isn't terribly satisfactory in there. And, and you know, the, the, hardline, uh, the hardline folks just simply say, well, you're a wimp and you're, you're not living in the real world, and we know where the real world is and you're not there. Um, one of the interesting things about the Muslim, the position of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt now, is it's not unlike, I suppose, the position of Hezbollah in um, in Lebanon. They've sort of got to decide what they are. Are they a political party who have responsibility to people for all sorts of things other than um, than being obsessed with Israel, delivering health, education, basic, basic services, a better life, uh, or are they? Um, uh, dedicated to an anti-Western extreme ideology. And the truth is probably some of both. Uh, and the question is what you end up with. Uh, I've thought about this more and longer about Hezbollah, because I've spent time in, in Lebanon recently, than the Muslim Brotherhood. But I really think that's ultimately the same question. It, it, it is wrong, I think, to say, well, the Muslim Brotherhood is all this or that. Uh, and I suppose if there's any... Uh, promise the somewhat unnerving thought that they will be a prominent force in Egypt. It is that they become responsible for those things that government does, um, infrastructure, you know, sewers, education, uh, health care, delivery of health care, the like. Um, and uh, I, think th- I think to that extent it's probably salutary. Um, you asked me about Turkey. Um, uh, you know, it, they are uh, uh, apparently recently experiencing less success uh, in their uh, relations and their attempt to expand their influence. Um, you know, the flotillas are um, uh, uh, an irritant which uh, threatens to, in any given case, uh, you know, become a really provocative incident. But I don't know that I think that Turkey could really get in the way of uh, of a, or wants to get in the way of a, of a peace process here, and I think really the central thing is trying to get uh, a peace that will hold between Israel and the Palestinians. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. You guys have been great. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.